Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara Whaley, the Associate Director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. And on this episode today, we have with us Kristen Schuler. She's an Assistant Professor and Director of Outreach and Partnerships at JMU Libraries. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, thanks. And we also have with us today Liz Shenevy. She's an Assistant Professor and also the Psychology and Social Work Librarian at JMU Libraries. Thank you both for sitting down with us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to just point people um, ahead of time to a great article that Kristen and Liz published in December of 2018, um, and uh, it is it is in a library's journal, but it's called Fulfilling Our Potential, Libraries Supporting Civic Engagement in Virginia. It gives a great um, and in-depth overview of many of the things that we'll be talking about today. Can you talk to us a little bit about how libraries of all types are, some, are supporting the civic life of their communities? One way is to be a communal space where people can gather and exchange ideas, kind of a common, a civic commons where they can work on things together. Um, and sometimes these are the only spaces like this in a community. Sometimes libraries, um, because they're free, you don't have to purchase a cup of coffee to participate in the space. Mm-hmm. That's one. Yeah. Um, another is just providing access to information um, is a really democratizing um, endeavor. Uh, we reduce digital inequality, um, so we provide computer access and in, uh, internet access to patrons, both at almost any library, um, public and academic. A lot of our academic libraries are actually open to the public because they're part of public institutions, um, so ones at uh, schools like JMU. Um, can provide that for the community as well as the public library. Um, But not only providing access to information, but also protecting people's privacy with that information. So you can come and check out any books or look at anything on the internet that you want, and we're not going to keep track of that. We're not going to report it to anybody. Uh, A lot of librarians have spoken out against things like the Patriot Act and using Mm -hmm. that to really protect their patrons' privacy so that they're, um, they're not afraid to come and actually use the access that we're providing for them. Yeah, just sorry if I can jump in. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we've heard a lot lately around um, the immigration debate, mm-hmm. for example, is that people are returning their public library cards because they're worried about being tracked. So I don't know if you, if that came up at all in in discussions with with libraries in terms of you know it's it's beyond you know we had the Patriot you know, with the Patriot mm-hmm. Act there was kind of a spark around that, but then also. In the current political context, there, you know, there's it's putting libraries in a certain position too about how do they protect those immigrants who may, you know, who may be here with or without documents, right? Mm-hmm. Who are returning their cars because they're worried about those concerns yeah. in a different context. That sounds yeah. like a communication and outreach problem for libraries because yeah. we're not communicating well enough in that case that we would protect patrons' privacy. Mm-hmm. It's one of our core values. So ideally, we would be protecting um, those patrons and wouldn't be releasing that information. And you don't have to be a citizen to get a library card um, anywhere. Um, you just have to have a proof of a residence in that area, which many people do. So, And even our public library here provides cards to um, patrons who do not have homes um, so, they're, so, so that they can use the computers. They can't check books out, from what I remember but they, um, 
they can have a card and they can come and use the computer and search for jobs and things like that. So you don't even have to have a residence to get a library card in a lot of cases. A lot of libraries are able to find a way to get you access to something, even if you can't have access to everything. And that leads into one of my other areas that I've noticed. Um, libraries support social capital. And for many people, including people experiencing homelessness, it's the only place they can go to interact with a huge range of people, different generations, because mm -hmm. we support story times and parent education around literacy. We support older adults who need a social interaction through a book club or a movie series. So teen centers. So it's, it's these places where not just to gather, not just being a, a, a passive space where people can engage with each other, but to actually, libraries actually build on that social capital by having mm -hmm. programs that bring different people together. Um, another theme uh, is providing um, like archives of local history. Um, so here at JMU, we have a um, alternative uh, newspaper that was produced by students in the what was it in the 60s and 70s um, that we have archived because we actually have a lot of JMU historical collections and local um, collections. Um, so providing kind of that historical context to what civic life has looked like. Um, another example that I thought of was I used to work at the Toledo, um, Ohio uh, public library system and they had um, an amazing archive of the local union movement. Um, and I, I mean, because I'm from Virginia, <laughs> we don't have unions. Um, and so when I lived in Ohio, I learned a lot more about what unionizing looked like um, and kind of how um, that affected labor laws in the state, and that was really interesting. So providing that kind of local history and context to their patrons um, to see ways that they can fit into that landscape now in the present is really cool. Did you find with the local archives, was there sort of active outreach to get different local perspectives in building those archives, or is it more sort of people with research interests pulling together those archives? Um, we collect a lot of things based on faculty requests and curricular needs, um, but we also collect a lot of, um, especially in our special collections, there's a very big push for just local history. And so I know our special collections librarians work with faculty and people in the community, the historical society, things like that. So it's kind of a nice cross-section of people and perspectives coming together. Yeah, and they work with neighborhood groups. They mm -hmm. work with um, all sorts of groups to find what... Um, pieces of the local history should be documented in the special collection. Uh, kind of going off of that, um, also looking at the way that we engage with our communities. So um, having this different these different programs that we can bring people in. Um, often libraries provide um, services for new immigrants, so another communication um, opportunity uh, there. Um, providing one book programs, so getting libraries, or um, sorry, the community all talking about one topic together in a space, um, having events on local issues. So we recently had, um, this, our special collections did an event on the history of our bicycle coalition in the area. But even beyond that, a lot of libraries, and this is often something that I think makes the news more, is more like newsworthy library news, but like supporting the community in times of crisis. So yeah. the big ones that um, kind of come to mind are um, in Charlottesville, and we'll talk a little bit more about them because they were one of the libraries that we interviewed. 
Um, but they, on August 12, 2017, when there were the protests going on in Lee Emancipation Park, um, they which closed. Which right next to the library. Which mm-hmm. is directly next door to the library, <coughs> the public library. Um, they closed the library for the day, and they allowed the law enforcement to use the facilities to kind of rest and get out of the heat. Other uh, examples would also be in Houston. Um, their libraries opened up as soon as they could after Hurricane Harvey um, to provide emergency aid to the community. Um, in a really well-known one would be in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, the library stayed open during the protests after um, the jury failed to indict um, the police officer who killed Michael Brown um, to provide a safe space for children um, because I believe a lot of the schools were closed and so children had no place to go during the day and the same was true in Baltimore um, with the Enoch Pratt uh, Public Library. The schools closed and those libraries both opened up their doors to the community of all ages to have a safe space um, that could they and they I think they provided food and um, educational and entertainment programming to especially the young children to kind of help them um, through the trauma that they were experiencing in their community um, and yeah Ferguson won a library of the year award from their work uh, in 2014 so more on point with our research the, the some of the direct ways that libraries are trying specifically to support civic um, civic engagement and the civic life of their communities, they kind of re- re- revolve around um, hosting deliberative forums, hosting panels on civic topics. We recently hosted a panel on the Equal Rights Amendment, which you were at, Kara. Mm-hmm. You were on, <laughs> I should say, the panel. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, library Libraries also host, some, some of them host civic academies to educate citizens on how the cities run or other events where candidates can interact with um, citizens or elected officials can interact with citizens. Um, Some libraries host voter registration tables or they offer a voter registration card when they sign up for a library card. So those are some of the more direct um, ways that libraries are trying to support civic engagement. But I had noticed that a lot of the writing about this work was either very general, very theoretical, about how great libraries are for democracy and civic life, or very specific, like one case study of one activity. And so I wanted to kind of delve into, well, how are we doing this on a broader scale? Where's the middle ground between this theoretical um, and the, the very one one spot specific? So what, what patterns did you notice in, <coughs> in doing your, your research in terms of how libraries are, are involved? We started with a survey of academic libraries in Virginia. We contacted all of them and got about a 35%, 37% response rate. We asked them what kinds of activities they were doing and what kinds of challenges they were facing in the area of specifically trying to promote civic engagement, not just as a byproduct of their mission. Um, And the pattern that we saw in academic libraries is that their most common activity was pretty passive. It was allowing other groups to use their spaces for dialogues of public interest. Um, The second most popular activity was collaborating with campus or community organizations to offer programming that they helped create rather than just letting people use the space. They also talked about the challenges included lack of resources for the work specifically, and they also noticed uh, deep partisanship among their patrons. That was another challenge. So after we did the survey with the academic libraries, we decided to broaden it out to public libraries because... Um, kind of as we've talked about, public libraries have 
maybe more of a history of engaging in this than academic libraries do. Um, and so uh, a lot of the themes we saw were um, collaborating across um, institutions. So some really cool collaborations we saw were between the Fairfax County Public Library and George Mason University. Um, and they provided a series of workshops on um, digital and media literacy and uh, dialogue skills to help kind of bridge partisan divides. Um, the Williamsburg Regional Library also worked with William and Mary's Law School to host um, constitutional conversations, which was aimed at teens and adults to kind of educate them about um, civic rights and uh, civic responsibility. Another main theme we saw was being a um, public forum. So a lot of the libraries, they weren't just opening up their space for another group to come in and host a forum, they were actually hosting the forum themselves. Um, which I think kind of stems from libraries being a very trusted institution. Um, and so they are kind of seen as a safe space for the community to come together and, and talk like we've been talking about. Um, and so uh, Central Rappahannock Regional Library offers community conversations where they explore various issues like homelessness, food um, insecurity, things like that. And they normally have a panel um, and then a dialogue with the audience. And um, as I said, we would get back to Charlottesville. Um, the Jefferson Madison Regional Library, after um, the events in August of 2017 occurred, they started holding several events related to race and racism, um, especially in Virginia. Um, and so they in, did some film showings of a film called I'm Not Racist, Am I? And this was followed by a facilitated discussion. Um, and both, they held this twice, and both of them attracted over 100 um, participants. Um, which was very successful. The, our contact at JMRL, Haley Tompkins, told us that uh, since the Charlottesville demonstrations in Lee Emancipation Park in August 2017, discussions on race have become even more pertinent to our communities, and this was a way to talk about racism in a very real way and create, that created dialogue and allowed for reflection on our own prejudices and biases. And so a few others um, are like community-wide reading clubs or um, one book initiatives, so um, one that uh, I found really interesting was in Henrico County, their public library uh, holds a yearly um, community reading program called All Henrico Reads, and um, they have this go on for, I guess, a few months, and they encourage discussion throughout, and then it culminates with an author talk where they invite the author and they do this big presentation. Um, and so in 2018, they had selected a memoir by Reina Grande, um, called The Distance Between Us, which was her, about her experience as a Mexican immigrant. Um, and so after the author talk, they realized the community wanted to continue having these conversations. And so they formed a panel of local immigrants and people who work with immigrant populations to come um, and present to at a separate event um, where they could kind of continue that discussion. Um, and I, I really appreciated um, their submission to us because they talked about how important it was to them to actually find local immigrants to tell their own stories. Um, and they weren't focused just on immigrants from Latin America. Um, they had uh, immigrants from various cultures so that they actually were able to tell their story as themselves and not just a person who works with immigrant populations telling that story for them. Um, and they had said that that was something really important to them to find that, which took a little bit extra planning because um, trying to convince some populations to come to the library and actually engage in that, it can be difficult, um, but it was really important to them to do that, and I really appreciated them mentioning that to us. 
I also thought it was great that their author event with Rana Grande had about 800 people yeah. at it. And they said that's, I think they said that's fairly average for their, their author. That's amazing. Paul Henrik Ruiz. A lot of these are really wonderful recent examples mm -hmm. and also seem to kind of react to the different kinds of external mm -hmm. events and political context in which we're in. Um, I wonder, you know, if you heard anything about historically, you know, how have libraries responded over time or if this was very sort of temporal? It really has been a mixed bag for mm -hmm. libraries over the years in terms of are we working on social justice and civil rights issues or not? Or are we part of a problem? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, libraries, public libraries in America in many places were segregated until the Civil Rights Act um, and were not welcoming places for African Americans or other people who were not allowed in because they weren't the right kind of person. Um, but on the other hand, there have been other areas where we've we libraries, where libraries have um, have worked on important issues. Well, I al already mentioned. Um, I mean, this was a more recent history, but um, yeah. the working with the or working against the Patriot Act, I guess, mm -hmm. um, in two thousand five, um, there was actually a um, national security letters request um, sent to a Connecticut library consortium asking to see. Um, specific instances of people using uh, their computers from a, a specific date a year before. And the librarians who received this were like, absolutely not. But because it was the, under the Patriot Act and there was a gag order in place, um, they were not allowed to say no. And so they took up a suit against the government through the ACLU. And so they're kind of called the Connecticut Four, these four librarians who fought back against the Patriot Act and ended up they didn't win, the FBI ended up just dropping the case completely, um, but they uh, refused to give information um, on our patrons because that's a core value of our profession is maintaining our patrons' privacy. Um, even further back, um, I can think of, something, something else I had thought of when you had kind of proposed this question um, was kind of how not just the institution of libraries have been supporting civic life, but how librarians have been using their skills outside of their institution to support mm -hmm. civic life. Um, and so the two biggest examples I can think of um, were during the, yeah, um, going back to how libraries were segregated prior to the Civi uh, Civil Rights Act um, in the summer of 1964 during the Freedom Summer Campaign where um, it was mainly volunteers, um, going through Mississippi uh, and encouraging African-Americans to register to vote. And so during this, there were several other um, kind of small volunteer-run institutions that popped up, Freedom Schools and Freedom Libraries. And for a lot of people, this was the first time they had ever had access to library resources. Um, so that's one example um, of librarians, like I said, I hope, uh, taking their skills kind of to the streets um, the other that I kind of thought of was also the People's Library from Occupy Wall Street. Um, that was a collaboration um, of librarians from, I would assume around the country, a lot of New York City librarians um, and volunteers who just wanted to kind of create something. And they created 
a multi-thousand volume library in Zuccotti Park during the Occupy Wall Street movement um, during that summer of 2012. And um, they had a cataloging system. Um, they checked books out. They had they were all based on donations. Um, and so it was a real library. Um, and after it was um, destroyed, uh, the ALA, the American Library Association, actually put out um, a statement in support of the People's Library and condemning um, Mayor Bloomberg's decision to destroy the library. Um, so. I don't know. I've, I've always been really inspired by those kinds of stories where it's not just the institution providing this kind of thing, but our, us, my colleagues, taking our skills to where they're needed most um, in a lot of cases. I mean, that kind of resonates too in the article, you know, at the end, the advice that mm -hmm. other librarians give is this idea of actually getting out into the community, right? Um, so that people have a better understanding of people's experiences and how libraries can be more responsive to those needs. And I, I feel like that is also, that resonates more broadly, I think, right now within the civic engagement movement, um, where, you know, that it, it is much more about being engaged in the communities, being within the communities, working alongside with community partners and not just being some isolated entity over here just talking amongst ourselves <laughs> yeah <laughs> right um and and it kind of gets back to this idea of resources for whom right like who should have these skills and if we are talking about a more democratic future um, the idea of ensuring greater equity and in access um, to those resources um, is really is a really important part of strengthening democracy. So you, you've talked about this a little bit with the Patriot Act, um, but another thing that you touch on in your article is is sort of the role between libraries or librarians and getting involved in politics, and that there's been sort of a distancing from politics um, in the past, um, at least. And I wonder if you might talk about a little bit you know, the case for libraries or librarians <laughs> as individuals, <laughs> you know, the institutions and the individuals, but what is the case for them to be involved in politics and, and what are effective ways for them to do so? Within the profession, there's this idea that libraries are a neutral space, um, that they're for everybody and all, from all uh, walks of life, all um, political views, but as we've kind of talked about, that hasn't always been the case. There were a lot of people that weren't allowed in libraries. And so um, I think that, but I think that that idea of neutrality has kind of infected in a way our ability to engage in politics um, because we think by engaging in politics directly, it means partisan politics. And there's a way of engaging in pol the political realm without being partisan. Um, and I think that's uh, a really big hurdle for a lot of people to get over. I think a lot of people also are just really holding on to this idea that we're a neutral space. And I, I personally, and, and we make the case in the article that that's not true, um, that we can't be neutral. Because when policy is affecting our community um, in very negative ways, affecting their livelihood and their, their safety and their ability to just be, um, we kind of have a responsibility to advocate for them on their behalf. Um, or to advocate alongside them. Um, because if 
if there's a sector of our community that feels unsafe, they're not going to come to the library um, if they don't feel safe in that space. And so on a kind of selfish level, we, we want them to come to the library. We need more people coming. We, we need more funding and things like that. But, you know, we are there to not only serve the community, but we are part of the community. So this idea of neutrality has kind of warped the way I think we think we can engage in that realm. Some librarians and some libraries don't want to put on programming or promote, say, book displays or events that seem too controversial or too partisan or mm -hmm. too, too pro one controversial stance. And one of the things that we're arguing in the article is that if you don't engage in these discussions that need to be discussed about, th these topics that need to be explored, mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you don't engage, then you're not helping the community work through it. Um, if, if, we don't, if we don't take a stance and have programs um, that matter to the community because we're afraid of controversy, then we're not, we're not fulfilling our moral responsibility to our community and we're not advancing our profession's ideals of access and privacy and democracy mm -hmm. and the public good. So um, we're not the only librarians who think this, yeah. w this way. <laughs> this is a big debate. <laughs> we're not staking out this <laughs> yeah. brand new territory. I think that um, you know when we aren't engaging in these conversations that matter to our community, mm -hmm. it lessens their perceived value of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in a sense starts to lessen the value that policymakers place on us because we're not um, really putting ourselves out there and um, trying to make our communities better and safer in a way that's really meaningful. And so I think it kind of comes back around to that again where because we aren't doing this thing because we think we need to remain neutral or whatever, um, we might not be keeping quotes you don't see air quotes on a podcast <laughs> um, but you know we're not kind of keeping up with that and um, it can affect the type of funding that we might receive um, and so that was one of the cases that we made in the article too is that as we if we continue to put our own voices kind of aside we allow for other voices to fill in that space even if they are in direct opposition to our professional values um, or even our personal values as libra individual librarians and library workers um, which then can affect policy that can affect our ability to have healthy budgets to collect the resources that our community needs or maintain hours that are that fit our community um, which is a giant detriment to um, especially public libraries and the communities that they serve when they have to cut budgets that affect their operational hours um, I think is an even bigger impact than even just a collections budget um, because that that place the library's place is kind of going away for them our professional organization, American Library Association, has a big lobbying uh, aspect. Mm -hmm. And so our dues to that organization help fund professional lobbyists for libraries. So and at, at all levels, city councils, Capitol Hill. Um, but that's not, that kind of participation in politics is not what was animating my interest mm -hmm. in this. Yeah. But it's important. and and they're doing it. And I do think individual library workers 
who can. Uh, we have things like library legislative days, that's mm -hmm. what it's called. You can in be May. trained. You can go to Richmond or go to, the, go to DC. I do think those of us who are interested should do that, and it's very important. Um, and there are other groups. I learned of a group at a conference called Urban Librarians Unite in New York City, and they they advocate for libraries and library workers and and funding and, and hours um, and equal access to these resources. And one of the things they've created is a database of New York City politicians, and it has their interests and how you you as a as an individual person, if you run into this politician, you might be able to talk to them because you know their interests and how you can connect that interest, which is not necessarily library related, connect it back to what a library does. So I was really excited about this database. It's, it's a really interesting idea um, of using the power of information seekers, information professionals, <laughs> to create an information resource that can help, help with the uh, lobbying efforts. The more we um, engage in these discussions that, are ma that matter to our communities, when local ballot measures come up, our, right. where our community actually has a say in um, what tax percentage goes to the lo local library um, because libraries get funding from all over. They get national funding, but they also get local funding. Um, and when ballot measures come up at the local or the federal level, like the Institute for Museums and Library Services, which was recently almost cut in the president's budget a couple years ago, um, as these ballot measures are coming up that we care about, um, when we are actually engaging in things that our community cares about, they may be more likely to vote for those measures to help support their local library. And so it's really that give and take that we want to see in the community. And when we don't engage with the things they care about, they may say, well, they don't do anything that I want anyway, so why would, my, why would I want my tax dollars to go there even further? Exactly. Yeah. So instead of saying, this is why we're so important, actually mm -hmm. being important. Being important. <laughs> being relevant to the community. Yeah. Show, don't tell, you yeah. know? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one of the most impactful programs that we did, that we partnered with the JMU libraries on this year, was the Information Literacy Workshop, mm -hmm. and with SMAD, to the School of Media Arts and Design, Professor Ryan Alessi and Hillary Ostemiller and Howard Carrier. And, you know, we had standing room only. Um, but one of the things sitting through that workshop that really struck me is, you know, we're teaching these skills um, to people who already have access to the best information and if we're not taking this out into the community as well right we're, we're only furthering that divide and information is so critical um, to having an informed public to holding power to account right to ensuring truly democratic societies you know have you thought about those kinds of partnerships or did that come up in in your studies I think you mentioned once that there was a library in Virginia that was doing media information literacy mm -hmm. um, and we know that this is kind of a movement in higher ed to focus on news and information literacy but how do we you know, make sure that we're not just exacerbating the existing inequalities between those who already have access to higher education and those who do not? That's a really great question. It is, and one yeah. of the problems is that high school librarians are being cut. Yep. There's fewer and fewer every year because of education budgets and perceived value. Mm -hmm. But high school librarians also teach information literacy skills um, to high school students. Mm -hmm. Bringing that, and we didn't even bring up information literacy as one of the key factors in how we, we, by our mission, support civic engagement. Because you're right, without that kind of ability to evaluate critical information, you can't make informed decisions as well. 
Um, so we, we work on that a lot in the university realm. And I, th I do think it's important to, to have that be more diffused throughout the community. And many public libraries do workshops on different aspects of information literacy, all the way from learning how to use a computer mm -hmm. to other, other types of skills like news, news literacy. But I do think it's more um, concentrated in the academic institutions. Yeah. And I think it's a, a really giant opportunity for collaborations between public and academic librarians um, and libraries. I mean, the, the two examples I had mentioned were William and Mary, and well, even with those two public libraries where they collaborated with the university, they weren't necessarily collaborating with the library at the university. They were collaborating with, and so the law school? Williamsburg and William and Mary Law School, and then it was uh, Fairfax County Public Library and the George Mason. Yeah, the George Mason School for Conflict Analysis and, and Resolution. resolution. Yeah, so they weren't even a collaboration between the two libraries. They were collaborations between maybe the um, those subject experts in the topic that they were diving into and the public library. And I think that's a really great opportunity, though, for academic librarians to work with our public library colleagues because a lot of them are, I mean, everybody, we all wear multiple hats. Um, but I would say public librarians are almost sometimes more strapped than academic librarians and tend to make lower salaries. Um, and so I think it would be a really great opportunity for academic libraries to help support our public library colleagues um, and to just improve those partnerships in general. Um, I mean, here we have a decent partnership with our public library in that you know our students can have uh, library cards at the public library and the public library patrons can, or anyone in the community, can have a card to check out things at JMU libraries, but that's sometimes, that's like surface level collaboration. And I think there's opportunities to go a lot deeper. And I think across the state, there's great opportunity for that. What do you think is the most pressing issue the world faces and what can libraries do about it? Well climate change. I think that the, the future of our earth and the future of our society is deeply bound up in the changes we're making to our atmosphere. Um, a lot of people have misconceptions about climate change, and I did a, a workshop with a chemistry librarian um, in my previous institution to use information literacy to teach people how to not believe a misconception about climate change and actually change their mind about the misconception. Um, so beyond education, so you know, as a, as a person, I can work with educators to educate the next generation. That's one thing that I can do as, as a, a person working in a library. But libraries are often some of the most trusted public institutions in our country as well. So what, what if we could have a huge program where all the libraries, public, academic, medical, legal, business libraries, hosted um, visioning sessions where we talked about what is it we're going to do about climate change and use both the space that tends to be trusted and appreciated, but also use the expertise of the people who work there to bring in some of the information or some of the misconception debunking that we need to get people talking to facilitate that that we, that we want. That sounds 
amazing and we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than talk Speculative about like, futuring. what's happening, we're talking about what's the problem. Let's talk about yeah. what do we want. Yeah. Let's yeah. create that vision together. Yeah, so uh, I totally agree that climate change is one of the most pressing public problems. Um, a lot of mine are kind of tied up in each other. It really, I think a lot of it really just comes down to not just climate change misconceptions, but information illiteracy. Um, you know, when I think about how divisive and polarizing our political realm is right now, I kind of think part of that is because people don't have the skills, or maybe it's also they don't have the want to um, really hear the other side. Um, or hear all the information and the data as factual. They, like People like to treat facts and data as opinions. Um, and I, I think that is a humongous opportunity for us um, because in the last several years, there's been a lot of library work being done around the idea of quote-unquote fake news. Um, but I think it goes a lot beyond um, the idea of fake news. It's really the idea of can people um, see information and be able and evaluate it in a way that aligns with their values, um, but where people can start kind of seeing the middle ground a little bit more um, and understanding how to read data, how to read facts um, is really what it comes down to. Um, yeah. I don't know. They're all kind of tied up for me. A lot of it is like the all the subsets of literacy of, of information literacy. Like health literacy is the other big one I kind of thought of. Like our vaccine dilemma that we're experiencing right now, and I think a lot of that is because people don't have health literacy skills to really understand um, what the repercussions and consequences of that are, and they may not trust the medical profession right now. And so, how do we kind of help bridge that trust? I think it all comes back to trust, really. And I think that by teaching a lot of these skills, we can kind of help um, people analyze information according to their values and trust one another to be doing the same. And there's also trust issues in participating in our processes, too. Do we believe that our vote makes a difference? Do we believe that yeah. our voice makes a difference? And if you don't trust the system, less and that's one thing that I'm we've been trying to do from our platform as um, a library at JMU is trying to promote the concept of your participation matters and your vote matters as well as I'm trying to partner with James Madison Center. So yeah, I think trust is a big big issue. What is one thing each of you would do to strengthen democracy? Would do or are doing? <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> are doing. Are doing. So mine, my, the first one that really popped into my head wasn't really about me as a librarian, but just as a citizen. Um, and I was just really thinking about how uh, our um, elected bodies don't reflect the society that we live in. Um, and so my big one is to elect more women and people of color into positions of power, um, to try to break up the homogeny that's there. And I would envision a more um, uh, 
trusting future. Sometimes I think you get more interested in a topic when it personally affects you. So I never attended a school board meeting before my daughter entered kindergarten. But once she did, I attended almost all of them. <laughs> so I'm a lot more engaged now in the local um, education landscape where I live, paying a lot more attention to issues of equity and diversity in our school system trying to hold our elected school board officials to account when they promise they're going to do something, trying to make sure that they do bring in that diversity trainer or they do bring in the resources they're promising. So that's my that's my contribution right now, is being active in the local educational scene and also talking to my daughter about it. Thank you, Kristen Schuler and Liz Shenevy for joining us today on Democracy Matters. And thank you for all the work that you're doing at our libraries and for sharing your research on what libraries across Virginia and, and actually across the country have been doing in civic engagement. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time.